What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I'm thrilled to be here today with Mike DeCesar, CEO and president at Exabeam. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for including me. We're thrilled to have you. And Mike, as we kick off here, I'd love for you to share a bit about yourself with our listeners, help them understand your background, you know, the path that you've walked, your journey to date up until this point at Exabeam. Yeah, nope, that, that, that sounds great. I went to school and grew up on the East Coast. And when I graduated, I was fortunate enough to get a job very, very early on in Oracle's infancy when Oracle was about the same size as Exabeam is today. So I moved to California. I grew up through the sales and marketing ranks, so maybe a little bit different than some of the CEOs you talk to and that I did not come in as a founder. I did not come in through the R&D level. I came in through sales and marketing. And I had sales and marketing jobs up through Oracle and several other companies, kind of moving into CRO roles and heads of sales and marketing. My first CEO job was at McAfee. So it was actually right after we had sold McAfee to Intel. And I ran that for almost five years. I was at Forescout. I came into Forescout, took the company public, and sold the company in 2020. And then I joined Exabeam about eight months ago as CEO, and I'm thrilled to be here. Mike, thanks for sharing. As I was preparing for this conversation, I came across a quote that you provided. You said, companies in every industry should be able to relate what they do to something that makes the world a better place. And it reminds me that having a sense of mission is often the best possible benefit that a company can provide. Can you talk to us about Exabeam from that perspective? What are you all doing that's making the world a better place? Yeah, so, I mean, absolutely. It's a lot easier to lead and motivate teams when there's all a you know shared sense of purpose about what you're trying to accomplish in the world. And I would tell you the entire cybersecurity industry is mission-based industry. You know, it's the only area of IT where you have adversaries waking up in parts of the world and trying to break your product every single day. You're trying to build things that keep customers safe and other adversaries are trying to get around your product and steal stuff from customers. There's a massive sense of purpose in the cyber industry, you know, overall. When you look specifically at Exabeam, what is so interesting to me about Exabeam is It's very easy to understand that in today's world, the amount of data that companies have to store has spiked radically over the last 10 years. Ever since the introduction of Windows, it became much easier for people to engage with computers. And as it became easier for more people to engage with computers, more documents, more applications, all types of stuff starts to spike up. So where we sit as a business is where big data meets cybersecurity. So when something that you read about in the papers happens to a company and that company goes through you know, a process of trying to figure out how to get the bad actor out of their environment, when that's complete, all that data needs to be packaged up and stored for compliance purposes and in case that thing comes back into the company's environment. And that's where Exabeam sits. We are a next generation SIM or security event management player 
that's right at the crux of that movement to the cloud of big data. Thank you, Mike. And as you think about Exabeam and the industry in general, one of the major challenges that you've talked about is the lack of talent. And you wrote an article actually about this, or you quoted in VentureBeat saying that there are about 900,000 cybersecurity professionals in the U.S. and 400,000 unfilled jobs. Can you talk to us a little bit about that challenge, how you think about addressing it, and what it might mean for the U.S. and the companies that are located here as they think about readiness for the threats on the landscape? Yeah. So when when you look at cybersecurity, even if a company's IT budget is relatively flat year over year, in most companies, you will realize that the part of that IT budget that cybersecurity is growing fairly radically. Because if your reputation is damaged, if you lose your customers' credit cards, if you're, you know, if you lose your own intellectual property, I mean, anything that comes out of cybersecurity can have a very, very high degree of relevance for companies. So we're in an industry that tends to grow. And with growth of spending comes growth in more jobs. And When you look at the competition for talent, you've got any number of agencies in the U.S. or any country that are trying to fill cyber positions. You've got every company that's trying to build out their cyber capabilities. And then you have companies like us that are in the cybersecurity industry. So there's just a tremendous competition for talent that's out there. If I kind of turn that back around and say, obviously, there's been a fairly tragic couple of years here with COVID. And, you know, lots of people have gone through incredibly bad experiences. So I don't want to minimize that. But if there is one positive that comes out of this in the cybersecurity industry, it has shown all of us, all of the companies that are in cyber, that we can be quite effective with a remote workforce that doesn't all have to be in headquarters location and come into a building every day. And it just opens that aperture up on being able to find more qualified candidates and to be able to consider a more diverse and geographically distributed applicant pool. Mm-hmm. And speaking of diversity, Mike, one of the things that you've also talked about with respect to the candidate pool for cybersecurity is your interest in veterans and the track record that you've seen with hiring veterans into your companies and into the industry in general. And you've said they take responsibility seriously and are helping the top cybersecurity companies and their customers fight against cyber attacks from nation states like China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Will you talk a little bit more about this perspective, why you look to the military for talent? So, I mean, if you look into almost any any country, I know Israel would be the most famous for this, is you kind of you see lots of people that lead cybersecurity companies that came from the part of the Israeli government that was focused on on cyber because at a very, very young age, they get exposure to the real world and what techniques the adversaries are using to try to break into a country or a company. And then the same thing, what techniques the country is using to try to defend itself against the adversaries that are out there. So I have found that in cyber, you need someone that understands the technology stack, but it's a seven by 24 mission. You know, if you're defending a global government or a global bank or a global healthcare or any one of these big companies, you can't say it's the weekend and we're going home. Like you're expected to provide a level of service to those companies that's very mission oriented. And like, we will keep on this until we exfiltrate the adversary from this company. And I've just found that hiring folks that have US military experience or any veteran experience for that matter has been a really strong leg up. And you know, hard workers, good, relevant experience. The reality is, is that someone can go through a 
computer science degree in the U.S. these days and is barely qualified when they graduate to play a real role in cybersecurity. Every company expects to have to train their people in a certain way. But, you know, you look for individuals that have the right characteristics. And I've just gotten I've been incredibly impressed with kind of the veterans that I have had the chance to work with. And just remember also that, they, you know, in the U.S. and in almost every country I know, the government is the biggest customer of cybersecurity as well. So there's also a, a knowledge of the customers that they're selling into. Last year in 2021, about 60% of the breakliners hired by our partners are U.S. military veterans. And so I couldn't agree with you more in terms of their capability and their aptitude. And yet, one of the realities that we've seen at Breakline over the last six years is that our veterans often come to this point of career transition where they're going from their military experience to their private sector experience, and they're burdened by imposter syndrome. And one of the things that you said about your life and career, you said in the past, you know, I'm not your typical CEO. I think you, you said a version of that when you introduced yourself. And I've seen in the past, you've said, I don't have an MBA from Harvard. I wasn't a top you know, student in college. I sort of bloomed late and found what I enjoyed in sales and worked your way up from there. Can you talk to us a little bit about that process of discovering what you're good at and discovering self-confidence, perhaps not once, but even over and over again, especially for our folks who are so high performing, but maybe face a moment of self-doubt when they're in the middle of a transition. And transitions are hard, right? I mean, you know, you're going from being, it doesn't make a difference if it's you're changing careers or if you're changing companies. The reality is, is that there's a certain level of comfort from experience that you have in anything. And when somebody tries to switch gears and move to something different, there's always going to be a period of, of uncomfort. You know, I'll tell you the advice that I give everybody is it's okay to go down a wrong way street occasionally and have to back up and go a different direction. You know, like I be inquisitive, try stuff, you know, like there's no book that says if you were a veteran with this experience, these are the three jobs that are the right fit for you. You know, every company has a personality, every industry has a personality. And I think it's just about kind of a little bit of trial and error and figuring out what works. I think personally, in the cybersecurity world, there are so many parallels with the military. Like almost every time you read about anything going down in the world, there's a cyber element to it. You know, is this country going to attack that country? Also comes with, is this country going to attack that country from a cyber perspective? And I think when you look at that same sense of mission, I just find that it's a field that veterans can transition to because there's many aspects that are similar. So even though there's parts they have to learn that are new, there's enough that's in common where I think it's a good fit versus maybe some other you know, industry where you have to put on a suit and tie and sit at a desk every day. That's just so different than what you experience in military. You don't see a lot of that in cybersecurity. So, you know, that's maybe one plug for cyber for the veterans, you know, program overall here. But I do think that's a really good transition process for sure. Yeah. And there's also like a little bit of a lens I wanted to dig into further with you, Mike, because I, I sensed in that comment you know, I'm not the conventional CEO when you sort of commented, like, I don't have the Harvard MBA or whatever. Maybe also like a badge of honor in that, you know, coming in from a different door. And I heard it again, you interviewed Steve Kerr. And he actually told you the story. Steve Kerr is the head coach for the Golden State Warriors. And he also played for the Chicago Bulls and the San Antonio Spurs. 
And he told you the story, Mike, of not being recruited initially and really having to work harder, you know, to achieve his goals and, and how that became a huge source of motivation for folks who are coming from perhaps an unconventional path in general, you know, and going after a particular goal and maybe not doing it in the way that they've seen lots of other people accomplish that goal, you know, thoughts, encouragement, advice sure. when you're walking a different path. Yeah. You know, rejection is hard, right? You know, it's, it's amazing because I'm, first of all, I'm a giant Golden State Warriors fan and the chance to meet with Steve Kerr was pretty incredible. I mean, the guy is one of the most understated human beings. And when you look at his CV, you're like, when, when you hear him talk about the fact that he wasn't recruited, he's been like, he was with Michael Jordan and won, you know, a giant number of NBA championships. He's been the coach of the Warriors for like seven years and been in the finals, five of them. Like he's one of the most accomplished people in the world. And, you know, the reality is, is that if he had simply taken that first rejection and decided not to play college basketball, look at all the great things that came to him. Like he wasn't just good at basketball. He was the best at basketball and still wasn't recruited early on. You know, I didn't have that exact same path. I just maybe wasn't as sure what I wanted to do when I graduated college. You know, I didn't, I didn't know I wanted to be computer science and be in the high tech profession, all the rest of those things. But you know, I think the key in all of this is just to continue to look and try to find something where it doesn't feel like work. You know, people say this, but I truly mean this. Like I, for, you know, decades, I've been a couple decades now in cybersecurity, did waking up in the morning is fun. Like, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. great to be compensated and it's great to be recognized and be successful. But the reality is nothing beats finding a job where it doesn't feel like work to you. And it's something that you'd want to do anyway. And I think that's just something that Steve has discovered. I think I've been fortunate to see some of that, you know, same kind of thing. And I think as you're, as we're talking to your viewers or your listeners here, I think it's just, again, it's a matter of be willing to try new stuff. Who cares? So what's the worst thing that happens? You try a new job, you hate it after three months and quit. Four months later, you won't remember anybody that you met in that job. Like it's just, you can't be successful at a chance you don't take. And, you know, I think it's, there's so much opportunity now when you look across the world, like what's come out of COVID has created a new work landscape. And I think there's a lot of opportunity that that's out there. And I think it's important that people continue to make that journey until they find something that they love. Mike, one of the things that has struck me about your leadership style and what you write about, what you talk about is the emotional connection to your colleagues, you know, really creating an environment of psychological safety. You talked about breaking down silos, establishing those relationships, building the rapport, increasing the transparency. And in one of your kickoff meetings fairly early on in your tenure at Exabeam, you had an offsite and you asked your team, what professional moment are you most proud of? And you talked about that as sort of a, a trust building exercise. Can you talk to us, share with us your professional moment that you're most proud of? <laughs> I've got a couple of them. I've been around for a while, but my first sales call ever was with Larry Ellison and Steve Jobs. So that was kind of cool. You know, that was when Steve- Little pressure. <laughs> immediately, he had just come back into Apple. He had been let go and was hired back as the CEO. So he was nowhere near the revered leader that people think of him today now, given the success of Apple. But in hindsight, I, I remember sitting in the middle of Apple's lobby, you know, scared to absolute death, but in a situation that was pretty cool. And to listen to two of the biggest visionaries, that was a really cool one. The second would probably be ringing the bell at NASDAQ when we took Four Scout mm -hmm. public. 
there's a massive sense of accomplishment that a company gets by being able to introduce themselves into the public market and be successful in the public market. So that was kind of fun as well. I remember seeing one of our investors at that time that had been in the company for like 15 or 20 years. It had been around for a long time and he was there in New York and kind of standing in the back and you could just see the pride from having picked something, you know, so long ago that turned into something quite that large. So those were both ones that stick out. Mm, Thank you for sharing, Mike. And another thing that I think is really fascinating about you is that you're a CEO in a really fast-paced, competitive, high-stakes industry. It's a big job with a ton of responsibility. You also have a very full life outside of work. And you've talked about your kids, your love of music, your love of cooking. You know, Can you talk to us a little bit about your investment in your personal life, you know, the time that you spend in your personal life and, and maybe what that gives back to you as a leader? Yeah. So, I mean, listen, I haven't always been great at this. You know, if I look back 20 years ago, the advice I would give to myself is to have a little bit better, you know, work-life balance probably at that stage, but I've gotten smarter about it as I've gotten older for sure. Listen, I, I absolutely love my family. You know, I look at my work family as a similar thing. Like I really enjoy the groups that I get an opportunity to be with, whether it's my own family or work. And I try to spend time on kind of both of those things. And things like cooking and, you know, music and other stuff is just a way to not always be so serious and be spending time on the job and to be able to balance those things. You know, I also, I've got two young daughters, right? I've got a 21-year-old and a 24-year-old daughter, and I'm hell-bent to make this industry a better place so that as they get older and grow up, that they you know don't have to deal with some of the same issues that have kind of historically been rooted. You know, it's not been diverse enough. It's not, you know, you can even see this within companies. It's some companies have reputations for being tough. Others have company reputations for being easy. But the reality is, is that if we're going to let employees from very diverse backgrounds bring their best to work, you know, it's on folks like myself to create an environment that balances those things and allows people from different perspectives to all be able to coexist together as well, too. And there's a little bit of mission for me in that one as well, because I, I really, it's really easy just to practice the same way people have done things for decades. And it takes some courage to try to break some of those molds and break class a little bit and to try to evolve the way that high tech is overall. So the fact that I like my kids a lot makes me even more focused on making that a objective here in, in my career as well. Yes. And Mike, you've talked about this quite a bit publicly. You've talked and written about wanting your daughters to enter a more gender diverse workforce in the future. And you don't just talk about it. Your team is also the representation of that opinion. And on your executive leadership team, you have several women filling key roles at Exabeam. And so I really respect that alignment between what you say and what you do. You've also further said the more diverse you become, the more people with diverse backgrounds will want to work at your company. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that's playing out at Exabeam in particular? You know, where you've seen the momentum start to build and make a difference and how you and your team have gotten there. Listen, I think a fish rots from the head down. And it's the same with a company. You know, like if I'm going to take a position with our employees, I have to practice what I preach. And I truly believe that a diverse environment is a better environment. I want to hear people from all different perspectives share their ideas so that when we make decisions, when we are confident that we're making decisions that have been thought through from every angle. So 
I've hired the best candidates into the positions. They just happen to have more diversity to them than maybe you see in other organizations. But, you know, listen, I mean, gender diversity is one of those, and it's one of the ones that's easiest and probably most prevalent to focus on. But there's diversity of all different types. There's, you know, an environment that is suited to folks that are just out of college and one that's suited to professionals that have been in the industry for a long time, you know, an environment that's suited to folks that have experience directly in what Exabeam does. And then also that we can bring people in and train them and, and help them have them add value, even if they come from different perspectives. And I could give you 20 different flavors of, of diversity. I think Exabeam, what I believe that we are accomplishing here is just building an environment where people are really free to share their ideas. And when you go out and ask your employees what they want, they tell you. And you know, a lot of what we are putting in place is just the feedback that we have gotten from our employees about kind of what we can do to make this company and then therefore this industry a better place. And you know, listen, I mean, obviously it it sounds very self-serving, but the reality is it's not. You know, compensation is only one reason people leave or stay at jobs, you know how bonded they feel to the team, do the values of that company line up with their own values. These are all things that we are all making decisions on and comparing every single day when we're in the work environment. And I think we have a long way to go, Exabeam, but I feel like we've made a lot of progress in the last year, and I look forward to continuing that progress moving forward. Mm-hmm. Mike, your interest in diversity extends beyond hiring. You've talked about creating an environment that delivers a sense of belonging and purpose. Are there some tactics that you and your team have employed that you encourage other leaders to put in place as well? Any kind of key wins or key success factors? Yeah, no, definitely. I've got, I've got three that come to mind immediately. You know, the first is hiring. You know, you have to hire people that you think are going to fit. You know, I've got three kids, so I always use the analogy, you know, if I brought a fourth child home one day, you know, I, I wouldn't choose that child quickly. I'd I'd want to make sure my other children liked that child and that my wife liked that child and that we felt that it was going to be a good fit. You'd go through that process. And that's kind of what you're doing every time you hire somebody, right, is you're adding a new personality to some team. And I think it's incumbent on the management team to make sure they're hiring people. I, I always ask folks during interviews, I'm like, just tell me about yourself. Like, what motivates you? Where do you see yourself? I mean, I'm, I'm asking those questions because I'm trying to size up if they think that they would be a good fit for us. So that's number one is just, is just really hiring well. The second is break down barriers. I don't believe in silos. You know, the easiest thing is to allow your engineering team to have a set of objectives that are only about the product and your sales team to have objectives only about sales. And, you know, sometimes in companies, you'll see those teams don't even speak to each other. You know, I believe that you should break those down, that at the executive level, it's harder, but that you need to make yourself cross-functionally dependent on each other. So I like programs where it's not obvious I can give it to one leader. It's got to be worked by multiple people because that gets them figuring out how to problem solve things together. And then the third piece is really around recognition. You know, it's reward the things that you admire. So in addition to somebody being a strong performer, you know, if somebody exemplifies your values, if somebody is, you know, goes out of their way to be an Exabeam citizen, a certain, you know, attribute that we're looking for, got to recognize those things as well. It's amazing to me how you know, you walk into a lot of companies and if you go into their conference room, they'll have their values on the wall. But 90% of the employees won't even know what's on that piece of paper if they didn't have it in front of them. And then if you listen to who they're recognizing, it's not people that exemplify those values. It's just the top performers. And, you know, listen, I mean, anybody can, can you know, as we just saw in the football season ending, right, like any team can win on any day. 
But if you want to build long-term culture in companies here, you have to appeal to what people want long-term. So I think blending those three things together is a good recipe. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mike. Your first point was around hiring. And over the years, you've interviewed and hired thousands of people. And you said that you know within 60 seconds if you're going to hire someone. Yeah. Can you share what you look for in that no. first minute of an interview? <laughs> I share it, but it won't work anymore. You know, I, I just, I like to ask crazy questions. You know, like I, here's the dichotomy is the people that interview the most are the ones that leave jobs the most frequently. You know, like some of the best employees are the ones that have been someplace for 10 years and not taken an interview. They're not going to be as polished in an interview as somebody that's had five jobs in the last five years. So like you can't hire somebody based on how they answer questions in an interview. Every single employee knows you're going to ask them, what would they do in their first 60 days? And, you know, like there's this, the same questions that are asked over and over. So my strategy is, you know, to ask something stupid. Like if you were a nail, what type of hammer would hit you? Like, I don't really care what their answer is. I just, if they try to answer that question seriously, it's a sign to me that maybe they're a little bit of a spinner and that, you know, they're going to, they're going to put a angle on every answer that they give you. But if someone just says, why would you ask me that question? Those are the folks I kind of fall in love with because it's like, you know, when you're working with somebody and they ask you something, it's good to say, just wait a second. Can you give me a bit more details? I want to understand what are you trying to accomplish? What's the you know priorities? So I just think it's, I don't know. I've been doing this for a long time. So I feel like I definitely, within a very short period of time, can get a good feel for whether someone is going to be a cultural fit with us. It takes me a little bit longer to realize if I think they're qualified for the job, obviously, because people are more complicated, but definitely have built that skill up over time. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mike. And is there a pattern to red flags? Where you know immediately, like, no, this is not going to work. You mentioned somebody who spins. Anything else that you're just kind of immediately turned off by? Yeah. Anybody who moves jobs too frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's amazing to me. You know, like if, if you go take a job, then you should stay at that job for a couple of years. And, you know, if you don't like the company, then pick better next time. But, you know, when I look at a resume and someone's had six jobs in six years, what makes me think they're going to stay at Exabeam for more than 12 months? You know, regardless of how good a company we are, they have a pattern. So that's one thing I really encourage people. I'm like, choose carefully, you know, like you want to get a company that wants to hire you. That's the, to me, the first half of the interview, if you're a candidate, the first half of the interview process is try to sell that person on offering you a job. But the second half of the process is to try to figure out if this is the job you want to take. So, you know, make sure that that dance lasts long enough for you to be able to answer both those questions before you make a decision. But I think too many people are too quick to change companies, and that's very unattractive to me. And then the second one is really just people that don't listen. You know, like Mm -hmm. if, if someone isn't listening to you and is talking over you in an interview, that's the best behave they're ever going to be. So you got to think, you know, what's it going to be like when we feel comfortable around each other? uh, (laughs) So that's probably the second red flag I look for. Thank you, Mike. So you and and the team, Exabeam, fairly recently raised $200 million, you know, at close to a $3 billion valuation. You had this great phrase. You said, we have a lot of nuts in the tree for a cold winter. (laughs) What are your plans? Can you talk to us about, you know, the next couple of years and what's exciting to you about the company and the trajectory ahead? So just understand, I mean, I've, I've kind of worked for like four or five companies over almost 30 years at this point. I don't move around very often. I, 
I don't come into companies with an exit strategy. I tend to stay at companies for a very long period of time. And I look for executives to be with me that have that same mentality because I think you get a very different work product from a management team that is looking to wrap something up in one or two years than you do from someone that is looking to build something over a longer period of time. So that was the first thing that I just fell in love with at Exabeam is just our team here is so passionate. I, my predecessor, Nir, who is still with us and an active member of the executive team, did an amazing job of hiring people, super passionate, very strong, lots of tenure in the organization. You know, we're in an unbelievable position, you know, like in the cybersecurity world, you know, you have security that goes on endpoints, a company like CrowdStrike that sells, you know, EDR that goes on an endpoint, or you have companies that are at the network, like Palo Alto Network that sells firewalls. Kind of one of the biggest buckets of cybersecurity spend beyond those two that everybody's heard of, you know, EDR used to be antivirus and firewall, is the SIM space. And this industry has fundamentally been done the same for the last 20 years. It's an on-prem set of products versus cloud. So, you know, that's becoming more expensive for companies to maintain. Companies don't want data centers anymore. They want to have everything up in the cloud. So the people we replace are on-prem and we're in the cloud. So that's one really big thing. And like I said to you earlier, there's just so much data that's being generated, right? You know, 20 years ago, people had a laptop, not even, you know, today people have a laptop, they have a phone, they have a tablet, they log in through web applications. There's just so much data that is generated about people and applications and, and things. So I just feel that Exabeam is at this incredible juncture of change that is going on. Like we are one of the companies that truly benefits the most from the movement to the cloud from a cybersecurity standpoint. So when I look out across kind of what we have in front of us here, it's unbelievable. And, you know, listen, we raised a lot of money, we're putting it into the product. You know, we still have a lot of work to do to become completely cloud and to be the best possible product that we can deliver for our value prop. We're plowing it into customer success. We're very fortunate to have some of the world's largest companies that depend on us. And as a relatively small company, that makes me nervous. So kind of building up our ability to support and help those companies implement our products is another big priority. And then just continuing to build out our sales and marketing teams around the globe that can go after the opportunity. We're in a giant industry. We're in an industry that is going through transformation and we sell from the smallest to the largest companies across all industries. Like this problem that we help companies with is global. It's not a small problem to a small number. So if anything, kind of the challenges for us are just keeping up with our own growth. The market's large enough to continue to support really strong growth, but you know, there's a reason that companies don't get above 100 and then don't get above 500 million and then don't get above a billion. It's hard. It's hard to scale organizations. And that's just what we're in the middle of right now is just figuring out how to position Exabeam for the next five to 10 years of growth and building out all those great things that we'll be able to depend on for many years to come. Mike, in that, that phase of scale, you just said it's really hard to scale and it comes down to leadership. And in preparing for this conversation, I had a chance to chat with members of your current team and some of your past teams as well. And people love working with you. People absolutely love working with you and being part of your team. And they talked about a lot of excitement with you coming on board at Exabeam as CEO, which isn't always the case when you're you know, sort of replacing a founder CEO, but it was the case with you. Can you talk to us about your philosophy around leadership? You know, What are you doing so well that is so compelling for the team that you have and for other people who, who really want to join you? 
Well, I mean, first, like I said earlier, I think I try very hard to create an environment that people from different types of backgrounds can all bring their best work and be successful. So that's number one. You know, I think when I look, and I won't name companies, but when I look across certain companies in the IT industry, they are only appealing to a very small demographic and they create an environment that might be great for that demographic, but they are, they don't figure out how to get more diverse. And I think that's number one to it is I, I'm a big fan of Myers-Briggs. And if you ever looked at Myers-Briggs, you know, extroversion versus introversion, that's one of the four categories. I think when you get to be a senior leader, you got to be a little bit of everything. You have to be able to work with introverts that have a different way they want to communicate, but then also be able to sit with an extrovert where you're going to have a hard time getting the word in edgewise and be okay in both of those environments. So that's the kind of the first thing is I I work really hard at that. And unfortunately, sometimes that means that I have to part ways with executives because they don't fit that. And, you know, hiring as an example, like I just don't believe that we should hire more than 5% of our employees from any angle of diversity. You know, I don't, I came from a force scouter, a McAfee. You haven't seen tons of people come with me because I wouldn't want the folks that were at Exabeam to feel that they weren't part of the future. And it's very hard for a leadership team to do that. And I focus a lot on it. Secondly is I'm a big fan of communication. You know, I believe you plan, you communicate, you know, you measure three or four times and you cut once. And and to do that, you have to spend a bunch of time as a team together. I try to mix that into a fun environment, you know, where, you know, we, we get together and do fun stuff together in addition to solving some of the more complex problems. But I'd like to believe that some of the reasons that you got positive feedback is I really do like the people I work with. You know, I, I, I fall in love with the team when I get involved with the team and I try really hard to make sure that they see this as, as an experience that they will look fondly upon at some point down life. It's always one of the comments I make to folks is my biggest fear is walking through SFO in 10 years and somebody dodges me and goes to the other side of a terminal and passes because they don't want to run into me. Like I, I want to be one of those leaders where if somebody sees me and that they come up and say, I worked for you at this company in these years and those years were really great. And, and to do that, you have to be willing to figure out how to work with all different types. But I'll tell you this, I'm a pretty hard charger. I'm very operational in nature. It's very important for me that the companies that I run and be part of are well-run companies. And you have to mix kind of the fun part of culture and communication in with the execution and performance aspects of the business. And I think I do a decent job on trying to blend those things together. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mike. You know, I was thinking about the space that you all are operating in and you've talked about how the problem that Exabeam exists to solve is only getting bigger and bigger. And you've talked about how cyber criminals are becoming more brazen. You said something like bad actors have found that the most profitable attack vectors, for example, are the ones that bring a business to its knees. You know, the risk seems to be increasing. And yet we've got challenges like a lack of talent that we need to address it. What gives you hope about the industry that you're in and what keeps you up at night? Yeah. So sadly, the answer to both of those is the same thing. They're two different sides of the same coin. Let's start with understanding the cyber landscape, right? I mean, you know, 10 years, let's call it a go. If you read about cybersecurity, it was usually because somebody stole some company's intellectual property. I remember, I forget what the manufacturer was, but I remember back in the day, 
you know, kind of some car company over in Asia produced a car and it was the blueprints from a company in Germany that had not gotten that car into the market yet. And there was this giant lawsuit that started as a result of that. Where cyber then evolved to was financial cyber, you know, ransomware, right? Which, you know, is the concept that someone takes over your computer and says, if you want your data and your computer back, you're going to pay me money. And that can be a human being at home or it can be a corporation. That's what, you know, some of the larger breaches that we've been reading about over the last few years where you saw companies like FedEx and Maersk, the shipping company that were like had to report on their earnings calls that they you know, they had major expenses because they had to pay ransomware and their business was, as you said, brought to its knees. They, These bad actors and sometimes get to a point where they can turn off the service you sell to your customers if you don't pay them. So you have to look at the evolution of what the threat landscape has been. And it's pretty daunting. You know, like when people say, I'm not sure I've been hacked. You know, my view is not only have we all been hacked multiple times, but every one of the major cyber powers around the planet you have to expect that they have every single person on the planet's identity by this point. They have your social security number. They know where you live. They, they know what your password is that you use 90% of the time. So, you know, just recognize that the technical sophistication of the adversaries is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So what gives me hope? This technical sophistication of the good guys is, is also getting stronger and stronger. And it's it's one of the reasons it's it's one of the Coolest, but also one of the most challenging parts of cybersecurity is it's impossible to become an incumbent. Like in any other industry, right? Like I, I always use word processing. I'm like, whether you use Google Docs or Microsoft Word or what have you, there hasn't been a new option in the last 15 years. Why? Because the big companies either buy or build a product, they get to 30 or 40% market share each, and then it's very difficult for small guys to be able to break into those spaces. Not in cyber. So, you know, my old employer, McAfee and Symantec, I mean, those were the two biggest companies in cyber for a long time. They're getting crushed by CrowdStrike at this point now right? because there's a better way to do that same value prop. And companies are very willing to kick the incumbent to the curve and to bring a new startup in. There's no area of IT that I can name for you where there's a higher willingness from companies to bet major investments on very, very small companies. So what that does is it brings a tremendous amount of innovation. I mean, you look at some of the smartest minds across the planet, let alone in, in IT, have evolved towards cyber. And there's cool companies. I mean, there's a reason that there's more funding going into cyber now than there ever has been. There's lots of great new ideas out there as, as well. But it will constantly be a game of cat and mouse. And just one more comment to you on this is just recognize that, you know, when we look at the different cultures around the world. You know, the U.S. is founded on free enterprise. So, you know, when we look at our power companies, our water companies, the critical infrastructure, it's all typically independent companies. Whereas when you go to many other countries, those agencies are owned by the government. So it's harder for us here. You know, it's harder for the U.S. government to impose standards when you're dealing with public companies and not divisions of your government, yet we still maintain a very active posture from a cybersecurity perspective. So that's why I come back to it. It's like this is it's why it's such a cool profession for those that want a sense of purpose is it's not really about us versus our competition. Like I am a very competitive person and want to see us continue to do great against our competitors. But it's really all of the competition against the bad actors that are out there, which just for a lot of people, that's a very inspiring place to want to spend their careers and to be able to figure out how to add value in those environments is rewarding. I love that. I love that perspective, Mike. Thank you for sharing. Hey, have you seen the documentary, The Rescue? I have not. 
This is a cool one. You might want to check it out. Do you remember the Thai soccer team that got caught in the cave yeah, system 100%. a couple of years ago? Yeah. So for like Jimmy two days Chin, or three days or something like that before they were rescued? 16 days, Mike. Really? 16 days. They were caught in this cave system. And they, the Thai Navy SEALs went in. The U.S. Navy SEALs went in. No one could get them out except for this dorky group of social misfits. They were like mid-50s kind of geeky British guys who were sort of socially awkward and had picked up this habit of cave diving, partly to extract themselves from sort of mainstream society. But what I thought was so cool about the movie was it was showing what a different form of heroism can look like than what we typically think of with like the, you know, hugely muscled, you know, superhero adventure kind of thing. And it feels similar to me when I think about you all kind of standing watch at Exabeam. It's a heroic form of service and it's a company and an industry that can really appeal to a wide swath of people who want to serve and be part of a mission. No, I agree with you as well. And I absolutely feel that we have that at Exabeam. And honestly, I feel the industry at large has that as well. As I said, every company has different personalities, but there's a tremendous amount of that perspective in cyber. It's this double-edged sword. You know, the the coolest part is that, you know, people don't have plumbing in parts of the world, yet they have internet. And, you know, we figured out over the decades how to make the world more connected. It's amazing to me when you listen to someone like Facebook, who's got, you know, 30% of the planet has accounts on their product at this point. Like we've become so ubiquitous from an internet perspective over the last, you know, couple decades, but just recognize that comes with it, a loss of privacy. You know, it's just everything that you do is online and it doesn't matter. It's like your money, your emails, your private texts, everything that you do is online. And, you know, we have got to figure out how to get the best of that connected world, but still protect people's privacy and to make them feel comfortable that using online services is not exposing their data. It's just a very easy way for them to communicate with whoever it is they want to communicate with. So there's definitely some of that in our industry. Thank you, Mike. So we're coming down to our last couple minutes here. And I read that one of the ways that you unwind again from this really high intensity profession that you're in is through cooking. And you actually went to culinary school and your son and your daughters enjoy cooking as well. My grandfather, Umberto Luigi Riva, was an Italian immigrant. So I know my way around the kitchen. And I will trade you my world famous in my household bolognese recipe. You bolognese. If, <laughs> if you fill me in on your wait is so D Cesare, so are you of Italian descent? I'm half Italian, half Irish. Okay, awesome. So what is your like if you had to have your go-to recipe, what would it be in the kitchen? Chicken parmesan. Chicken parmesan. And is oh, yeah. there kind of one secret? I won't to share it. it. There is. But I won't <laughs> Mike, share it. Mike, I will tell you my secrets. My I'll give one of my grandmothers, my grandmother. I, it's funny. My entire family has always been cooks. I went to culinary school on weekends just because I didn't, I didn't have enough money to eat out all the time when I moved to the West Coast. And 
And I didn't, yeah. I didn't want to eat, you know, French bread pizzas anymore, you know, like I did in college. So I went on weekends and it was amazing. I took Thai, I took Italian, took soups, took sauces. I did it for kind of probably about 12, 14 weeks, somewhere in that zone weekends. And it was full weekends each time. I'll give you one, one key. My grandmother did this and I, I'm a giant meatball fan. So I, I'll tell you on meatballs. So Meatballs so, all day long. Yes. Meatballs, when you eat meatballs, they, they taste like dense wood sometimes. And what right. the recipe that I have is in addition to the meat, I soak bread in milk and then mm. I mold that into the meatballs. And then I dip the meatballs in water before I fry them, which just makes them unbelievably moist and amazing on the inside. So you should try that. That is a surprising now, tip. And now I want your bolognese recipe. Yes. I'll give you and our listeners my one tip, which is take an hour to brown the meat. Combo of beef, veal, and pork, take an hour. You have to be so gentle as if you're dealing with like a little tiny newborn baby. <laughs> Versus it getting too browned or something too early. So it's yes. Early. So it's tough. Yeah. You have to just be so yeah. delicate and so That's gentle. Great. Sounds delicious. <laughs> Mike DeCesar, such a treat to chat with you today. Thank you so much for sharing more about your life, your career, your company, you all at Exabeam are doing amazing things and it was really fun to hear more about it. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and look forward to connecting again downstream. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.